Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio will cover the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 8. It's the chapter right after the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about three healings, a man with leprosy, a centurion slave, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 says this, When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with a serious skin disease came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The mountain that Jesus came down from was the mountain on which he gave the Sermon on the Mount. The mountain is unknown. We don't know where it is today. The sermon apparently attracted large crowds because there were large crowds following him. So it's the sermon, the the incredible teaching on that sermon that got a lot of people to follow Jesus. Right away, a man with a serious skin disease. What's a serious skin disease? Well, the old translations had leprosy. In fact, the NIV has leprosy. I'm using the Holman Christian Study Bible here. The Greek word was used for various diseases affecting the skin is not necessarily what we call leprosy today. But whatever disease it was, according to Jameson Fawcett and, and Brown, it was loathsome, diffusive, and incurable, making it a good symbol for sin. Now, the man knelt, the, the leper, the man with a serious skin disease, he knelt before Jesus. Was he worshiping Jesus as God? Or was it was he just giving him honor as a human being? This is early in Jesus' ministry now, and the ideas of who the Messiah is are very, very fuzzy. Well, it's not an obvious question. Uh, according to John Gill, Jameson Fawcett Brown said, yes, he, the leper was worshiping Jesus as God. And I guess that makes sense. you got a man going around teaching like that and healing people all over the place. You would tend to think he was divine in some sense. But at any rate, he knelt down before Jesus. Now, here's some parallels here in Luke chapter 5 and 12, Mark 1 and 40, the synoptic passages. Luke chapter 5 verse 12 says this, While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him. And that little detail there shows that the leprosy was, he was covered from head to toe. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's another little detail. He begged him. Didn't just ask him. He begged him. And Mark 1.40 says the same thing as Luke 5. Now, the fact that this man came down and begged showed that he had remarkable faith. Jesus hadn't said anything about healing leprosy, as John Gill points out. And apparently the man had never seen a healing of leprosy. And in fact, this is the only cure of leprosy recorded by the Synoptic Gospels. Leprosy was an incurable disease. It was an incredible miracle to heal leprosy. The man had never seen it. He had never heard of it. And yet he had enough faith in Jesus to say, you can heal it. This is probably the first case of a healing of leprosy. So... The man had a lot of faith. And let's talk about that. Did Jesus, does Jesus heal more readily when the recipient of the healing shows more faith? I don't see how you can deny it. We'll see that as we go down in chapter 8. Uh, we'll, we'll see that, that faith has a big impact upon Jesus' desire to, to do a miracle, to heal us, or to heal people. All right, let's, let's talk about this word, willing. The leper said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper was extremely modest. If you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper knew that Jesus had the power to heal him, but he didn't know if the leper wanted to, if Jesus wanted to heal him. Maybe it's because he felt so low and unworthy as a leper. Lepers, the Levitical requirements for lepers made lepers end up being very, very, very low caste. They had to walk through the streets 
with their clothes loose, their hair hanging down, their hands in front of their mouths, yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. Then they will quarantine and had to live outside of civilized society. It was a terrible, terrible situation. The point of that was to protect the population from the spread of the leprosy. Well, naturally, that's going to make somebody feel pretty unworthy. And yet he came up and says, Jesus, if you're willing, please heal me. Now, the man really wanted to get healed from his leprosy. Jesus said he was willing, and I like to point this out to cessationists who always gripe that, A, people are coming for the healing, they're not coming for the person of Jesus, they don't love Jesus enough because they want to get healed. I don't know, you tell that to the leper. Every time I hear it, it just raises hackles in my soul to think that somebody would say that. You ever been sick? Man, if you've been sick, you better go to Jesus, especially when the doctors can't cure you, and leprosy was an incurable disease. Matthew chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, reaching out his hand, he touched him, he, Jesus, touched the leper, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately his disease was healed. Then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses prescribed as a testimony to them. First of all, we note that Jesus touched the leper. Well, that immediately made him unclean. He didn't care if he was, if he was made Levitically unclean, ceremonially unclean, it didn't matter. He had more compassion than worrying about whether he was clean or not. Now, some people say that that shows that he broke the law. I don't think it means he broke the law because, after all, the law says, if, for example, if you touch a dead person like at a funeral or something, you're unclean. It didn't mean you broke the law. It just means you're, you're ritually unclean for a while and you can't offer a sacrifice. So, uh, But there is another place where Jesus said... Um, he, he called the, 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 the utensils clean, thus, thus putting, uh, putting an end to the validity of the Mosaic law by declaring, declaring not cups, declaring foods clean. I don't have that scripture off the top of my head, but Jesus didn't have any problems with breaking the law, but I don't think he broke the law here. See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. So the question is, is why would he tell, Jesus tell the leper, don't tell anybody? Well, let me give you the standard answer to that. The people had false notions about the Messiah. They were expecting a military hero to come riding on a white horse to conquer the Romans. Jesus is just starting out his ministry. If he got proclaimed Messiah that quick, they would continue to think that. He, didn't have, he, he needed three years to teach his disciples, look, I am not a military Messiah. We're not going to start a revolution against Rome. Now, if he had not have stopped that kind of talk... There would have been a revolt. The Jews would have come down and tried to stop it. They would have got the Romans to stop it. There would have been a bunch of people killed, including Jesus, and you and I would be going to hell. It was very important that he keep it quiet. Also, the NIV Study Bible points that out. Also, the NIV Study Bible has another interesting point. It said that Jesus had a strict schedule to keep. He was going around trying to minister to all the cities, and if he got stuck on one place because of all the crowds, all the other cities wouldn't receive his ministry. And another possible reason, according to the NIV Study Bible, is Jesus didn't want to be considered just a miracle worker. He was interested in his teaching as well as his healing. And so if people got so excited over the, the healing that it hindered his ability to teach, then it would mess his ministry up. Also, the NIV Study Bible says that Jesus didn't want to be killed prematurely. The Jewish authorities would naturally see such a popular teacher as a threat, says Adam Clark. And so and I say that the preparation time for the disciples would be cut short. And since Jesus was so explicit here uh, about his healing and so forth and his teaching, it would be normal for the disciples to start talking up Messiahship. So Jesus wanted to stop all that. Well, 
that makes a lot of sense, but I'm going to throw a little fly in the woman here in just a minute. But first of all, let's go through the scriptures that show that Jesus in many occasions told the people, don't tell anybody about this. Matthew 9:30, and their eyes were opened, and Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Matthew 12, verse 16, he warned them not to make him known. Mark 1, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. I think that's a parallel to, the, to this passage in Matthew 8. Mark 5, verse 43, then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and that she should be given something to eat. Mark 7:36. then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. Luke 8:56. her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So this was Jesus' modus operandi. He would uh, say, he would heal somebody and say, don't tell anybody. Okay, for all the reasons that I just gave, he didn't want to have a premature political revolt on his hands. He told everybody to keep quiet. That makes a lot of sense. But John Gill, as I said, was going to throw a fly in the ointment. What is the point of telling everybody to be quiet since the miracle was done in front of large crowds? The large crowds that followed Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount. And since the large crowds already knew, what's the point of keeping it quiet? Well, John Gill's solution to that little problem is this. that he, was, he says that Jesus wasn't concerned about the crowds knowing. He was concerned about the priest in Jerusalem knowing. In other words, Jesus told the leper, go get clean, cleansed, but don't tell the priest down there in Jerusalem who, who healed you. Just say, I'm healed of leprosy, and let them go through the ritual. Because if, if you tell them that it was me, Jesus, they hate me. And they're not going to give you the ritual, and they're not going to pronounce you clean. And, of course, this was extremely important to a leper, because if you're not clean, you can't live a civilized life in civilized society. You have to remain quarantined in the leper colony. So Jesus, according to Gil, was just showing compassion for the priest. Well, if you take that view, and I don't, if John Gill is right, that means all these other reasons that people traditionally give about Jesus not wanting to tell anybody because he wanted to prevent a premature proclamation of his messiahship well then you have to completely throw all those reasons out the door because jesus is trying not to protect his ministry he's trying to protect the leper well how do we solve this problem i think in my humble opinion that even though a leper is killed in front of large crowds those large crowds aren't going to be able to see exactly what happened they the people around the leper might see but you're talking about large crowds pressing up they can't see what's going on up at the front and uh, so I think that's the answer right there. Jesus is saying, look, I healed you. Don't tell anybody because I don't want to get killed prematurely. Now, it didn't matter as it turned out. The man disobeyed Jesus. We look at the parallel passages in Mark chapter 1, verse 45. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they would come to him from everywhere. So it didn't work. The crowds kept coming. So Jesus just quit going to the towns. He ended up going into the wilderness, out in the, into mountains and places like that where the crowds couldn't find him. Now, two things made Jesus withdraw from the towns. First of all, his growing popularity. The scriptures show that he's getting more and more popular. Mark 1:28. News about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jer Jerusalem. Notice even from the south, they're coming up to the north here. Idumea, which is even further south of Jerusalem, and beyond the Jordan is to the east, and around Tyre and Sidon is to the northwest. They were coming from everywhere. Jesus was making a huge splash. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. 
Luke chapter 7, verse 17, this report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. So that was one reason he was getting so popular he couldn't, couldn't function because of the crowds. The other reason he withdrew from the towns and went to the wilderness is because of the growing resistance of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Here's some scriptures showing that. Mark chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who could forgive sins but God alone? Mark chapter 2, verse 16. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, they were Pharisees up north too in Galilee as well as in the south. I think I read somewhere. So I'm not going through the context of all these verses. Some of it could be in Galilee. Some of it could be in Jerusalem. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 24. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way, picking some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Mark chapter 3, verse 2. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Mark 3, verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, there's your answer right there. I've told you about people coming from Jerusalem up to Galilee to see what was going on. Here's an example of that. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul in him, the Lord of the flies, the devil's devil, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So Jesus has already got people loving him and hating him. And that's typically what happens when the word of the gospel goes out. People either love it or they hate it. Now, why did this man tell? Well, perhaps he had good intentions. Maybe he wanted to spread the news, this leper, to help Jesus' ministry. Or maybe it was just he was so joyful in his heart he wanted to testify to God's goodness he just couldn't keep quiet about it. But he did disobey Jesus. All right, now why did Jesus want the leper to show himself to the priest? Here's five good reasons given by, the NIV, given by my NIV study Bible. On Luke, on, this is on the parallel passage. First of all, to show that Jesus desires to keep the law, that he was not really, he was not a lawbreaker. He tried to keep the law. Now, I will say this. Jesus did keep the law most of the time, and he said that one, not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away in Matthew chapter 5, but he did declare some foods clean, which weren't clean by the law. So we've got to balance those two things out. I think Jesus generally wanted to keep the law, but if push came to shove, if keeping that law ritually got in the way of Jesus' compassion for somebody, Jesus would say, hey, he has the right to break the law. He's the new lawgiver. To provide, uh, but anyway, that's the first reason to, uh, that he wanted the leper to go down to the priest to say, say, look, I'm not trying to overthrow the priestly kingdom here, the priestly rule. I'm not trying to be a revolutionary. The leper's keeping the law. I'm urging him to keep the law. The second reason was to provide further objective proof of the healing, because if the priest went through the ceremony that they would be saying we approve of this healing we approve that jesus healed somebody which of course is against what the pharisees normally would like to do also the third reason that jesus told him to go down there perhaps was to testify to the authorities of his ministry look i am preaching the gospel of the kingdom you need to know what's going on well i don't know about that that seems to cut against the idea is trying to keep it quiet Fifth reason that my NIV study Bible suggests is to show that Jesus was divine, to prove to the Jewish rabbis and scribes down there in Jerusalem that Jesus was the Son of God, because only God had the power to heal leprosy, and he healed leprosy. All right, so those, for whatever reasons, uh, and these are all speculations, of course, Jesus sent him down there to get, to go through the cleansing of leprosy ritual. Now, Jesus did not make a further trial of faith for the man. He didn't need to. The man showed so much faith. 
You know, sometimes Jesus would do that when the rich young ruler came to him. And Jesus looked at him and says, mm, I don't think this guy's ready for prime time. I don't think he's ready to be my disciple. Uh, why don't you give all your stuff away? So he tested him to make sure to see. Of course, the rich young ruler failed the test. But he, he, Jesus didn't need to do that with this leper because he came to him. He was a social outcast. He, he bowed down to him and says, please, I'm begging you, heal me. He, without having any evidence that Jesus had ever healed an uncurable disease like leprosy before. Mark adds an interesting detail in the parallel passage in this incident. Mark chapter 1, verse 41 says this, Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Moved with compassion. It's another reason for the healings. They're not just signs of the kingdom to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah about when you see the lame walking and the deaf hearing, know that the, what is it, the time, what is it, the day of Jubilee has arrived, I forgot, when the, the messianic kingdom has come, when you see all these miracles, and John talks about miracles being signposts that point to heaven, that's absolutely true. But there's another motive that Jesus had for healing people is because he loved them. He loved them. And I really wish these people who talk about all the fake healings and all the fake faith healers, think about, let's say 99% of them are fake. What about the one person that's healed of cancer? or healed of uh, Alzheimer's or some horrible disease, or healed of mental illness. That is something we should be jumping up and down with joy for because it is a compassionate thing to see a sick person heal. That's why we love these stories when people get healed, either in the hospital but by unexplained medical reasons or by miracles or however. We, we love it because we care about people that are sick. Jesus tells the leper to offer the gift, the sacrifice that were involved in this cleansing ritual in Leviticus, Leviticus 14 and 15, when you had to offer doves and pigeons, sometimes a lamb, and that's what he's talking about. And then he told, tells the leper to go in verse 4. It seems the leper wanted to stay with Jesus and keep tagging along. But Jesus says, no, 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 go down to Jerusalem. Just don't tag along with my ministry here. You've got important things to do down there. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, remember Capernaum is his base of operations, his new hometown, a centurion came to him pleading with him. A centurion, Capernaum was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. This Roman, uh, he had moved there after coming from Nazareth, his hometown. A centurion was a Roman military officer who was in charge of 100 soldiers. Now, there's an interesting situation with the parallel in Luke chapter 7 verses 1 through 5. These verses say this in Luke, when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people he went to Capernaum and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. I'm assuming that the Roman official, the centurion, lived in Capernaum also. So the Jewish official, the, the, the centurion sent some Jewish elders to come and save the life of the slave. So there were some intermediaries coming to ask Jesus. When they, the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. It was he who built up, built us our synagogue. Matthew, in reporting this, doesn't mention the Jewish intermediaries. Matthew just says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him. Matthew just leaves out, the intermediaries, that does not mean there's a contradiction in the Bible. It just means that one detail was left out. What did the centurion ask? Chapter Verses 6 through 8. And saying, the centurion saying this, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
Now, why did the centurion say, I'm not worthy? He was a big shot Roman official. Why did he say he wasn't worthy? Well, it could be because according to rabbinical law, he was a Gentile, and Gentiles would ceremonially defile a house by entering a Gentile's house. So if Jesus went to the Gentile's house, he would defile himself. And so the centurion didn't want Jesus to do that. Or it could be he just felt he was morally guilty in the presence of Jesus, which is a more serious thing, and I think that's what it is myself, is that he just felt that this man was so awesome, so majestic. His teaching was so sublime, and his miracles were so powerful. He just felt in awe of him, felt like he was not worthy for the, for the man to come down there. Showed a lot of humility, this centurion did, as well as a lot of faith. Now, the centurion obviously cared a lot for this slave, and one of the parallel passages says he thought highly of him. He was a man of faith, as I just said. He loved Israel. He built a synagogue, as it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 5. And so he wanted that slave to get healed. That shows that a lot of times personal, bo personal uh, bonds grow up between people in diverse social status statuses. He loved that slave, and he wanted him healed. He said the slave was tormented, paralyzed and tormented. Now, it's probably emotionally tormented because a paralyzed person is not going to feel pain because he's paralyzed. But he was probably tormented in his mind. Think about what it's like to be paralyzed in that society. You don't have handicapped parking places. You're basically left to beg. Verse 7, the centurion says, uh, Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, Jesus didn't eventually come upon seeing the centurion's faith. Now, here's a question. This question always comes up when you're talking about Jesus as he operates here. Is he doing, is he operating now as human or as divine? If he's divine, he's omniscient. He wouldn't need, he wouldn't say he was going to come because he would know in advance that, that the centurion would say, heal him from where you are, and he would have done it. He would know the future. But he didn't. He said, I will come and heal him, which means he's operating as a man because he didn't realize what the centurion was going to say later, that, hey, don't come to my house. Jesus said, I will come. The centurion said, don't come. Well, Jesus would have known that, so he wouldn't have said, I will come, if he knew the centurion was going to say, don't come, if Jesus was acting in his, uh, out of his divine nature. But here he's acting as a human. This always comes up. Is Jesus acting as, a, as, as God? Is he acting as a human being? Or is he acting as a human being under the power of the Holy Spirit, with the aid of the Holy Spirit? And theologians love to debate, toss that around a lot. Now, some people say, nah, he knew what the centurion would say. He was just testing him. I see that. He was acting as humanity. Now, he called him Lord. The centurion called Jesus as Lord. Adam Clark says that should be translated as sir. He's not addressing Jesus as God yet because Kyrie, the Greek word, should always be translated as sir when a Roman is the speaker. Perhaps so. But at any rate, the centurion showed a lot of faith in this man who could heal him at a distance. The centurion was different when he took him home, the slave home. Many people took paralyzed patients like that and send them to a workhouse or to an infirmary or to friends and relatives. And this was not even a relative of the centurion. This was a slave of the centurion, and he took him home to, to nurse him, to look after him. The centurion continues in chapter 9, verse, verses 9 and 10. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Jesus turned around and spoke to his disciples who were following him. It's a teaching moment. As our beloved ex-president used to say, Barack Obama, a teaching moment. A teaching moment. I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. And what he's trying to say is, in Israel, we've got all these Pharisees denouncing everything I do, not believing anything I'm doing. And here we have a Gentile dog 
Not only who is a Gentile dog, he's a representative of the hated Roman Empire who is oppressing the Jewish nation, and he believed in Jesus implicitly. Not only that, he was a soldier. And as Adam Clark points out, the military life is one of the most improper nurses for the Christian religion. Improper nurseries, I think is what he meant to say, or either I copied him wrong. And most improper nurseries for the Christian religion is the army, because, you know, soldiers are not noted for being very spiritual. They're usually pretty rough and pretty profane. So this was quite, a, uh, quite an interesting guy, this centurion. Now, Jesus is so impressed with the faith, he then starts waxing eloquent about the coming kingdom. Matthew 8, verses 11 through 12. I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the east and the west, this shows that it's not just Jews who are coming into the kingdom. Remember the context. It's a centurion, a Roman. And so Jesus is, and from the get-go, is emphasizing the universality of the gospel. It's not just for Jews. In this most Jewish of gospels, Matthew, Matthew emphasizes this. In fact, Matthew finishes up his gospel in chapter 28, when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All the nations. Uh, Luke chapter 13 says this, and they will come from east and west, and from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. I'm not sure this is the same time that Jesus was teaching in Matthew 8 might have been, but the point is, is that a little detail is added here. East and west, north and south, from everywhere, from the four corners of the globe, from the four points of the compass, people are going to be coming into the kingdom. Jesus' prophecy was exactly true. There's over a billion Christians on this planet now. Now, this metaphor of eating, eating is something that is often talked about in the Old Testament. Moses ate with God up on Mount Sinai when he had fellowship with God. Remember, the angel of the Lord came and, and ate and had fellowship with the parents of Gideon. If you remember that story, eating is a, a symbol of fellowship. The Lord suffers when we eat with the Lord in the New Testament. So reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a symbol of fellowship. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the patriarchs. They were the founders of the kingdom, the Typical kingdom was the Old Testament kingdom of the Jews, of Israel, and the antitypical kingdom, the fulfillment of that kingdom, is the New Testament church, the kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus is talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's talking about people coming into the church. He's not talking about people coming into a Jewish kingdom. I, if you're a dispensationalist and don't believe that, I'm so sorry. But that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people coming into the church, north, south, east, and west. But the sons of the kingdom... That's referring to the, the Jews who, were, who had constituted the Jewish kingdom at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and all those guys. They're going to be thrown into the outer darkness. Why? Because they did not, because they rejected Jesus, the Messiah. And in that place of outer darkness, they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Abraham is, symbolizes believers. Galatians 3, 9 then says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the believers are going to be with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. Abraham, of course, being the father Abraham for those who believe, Romans 4, Galatians 3. So the believers are going to be with Abraham, but the non-believers are going to be thrown out of the kingdom into the outer darkness. Now, the next question is, is what is that outer darkness? Well, if it's a symbol of hell, and many people think it is, the first thing you have to say is that the symbols for hell are not universally compatible because in some places the symbol of hell is Gehenna where there's a bunch of fires that burn forever. Fire creates light. There's no, dark, there's no darkness when there's fire. 
And that doesn't bother me. I don't know exactly what hell's going to be like. Jesus used symbols. And uh, either outer darkness, that's pretty miserable, or fire, that's pretty miserable too. The point is, it's not going to be pleasant. The sons of the kingdom are going to be there, the Pharisees. He basically said, you guys are going to hell. Well, he wasn't talking to the Pharisees. He says, the Pharisees are going to hell. You're not, but they are. What about this weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, there's some options on that. John Gill and Adam Clark say that this refers to the poor who gnash their teeth upon it being excluded from a banquet hall. Let me give you the quote from John Gill. The allusion in the text is to the customs of the ancients at their feasts and entertainments, which were commonly made in the evening when the hall or dining room in which they sat down was very much illuminated with lamps and torches, but without in the streets were entire darkness, and where were heard nothing but the cries of the poor for something to be given them, and of the persons that were turned out as unworthy guests, and the gnashing of their teeth, either with cold in winter nights or with indignation at their being kept out. Well, that's pretty good. Or, John Gill says, it could be that the demons, the Jews thought that demons in hell gnashed their teeth, and so they're going to be gnashing their teeth with their fellow demons. Or their, not their fellow demons, their associates, the demons. Either way, the imagery is pretty rich here. The, the way you want to avoid the outer darkness is you want to believe in Jesus. And reclined at the table with Abraham. Reclining, of course, is how they ate back then, by lying down. That's why they reclined. Before we leave this verse, I ought to mention that it could very well be the outer darkness refers to when the Pharisees and Sadducees were destroyed by the Romans in AD 70 when their kingdom was utterly destroyed. Could very well be that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Healed at a distance. Now, notice, it shall be done for you as you have believed, according to your faith. Not according to your righteousness and goodness, John Gill points out, but according to your faith. Now, I'd like to make a comment about that. There's nothing, in my opinion, that is more heinous or heinous as the word faith message. I've seen people get caught up in that thing. I know everything about it. I know the bad results from it. And I don't need John MacArthur or his buddy Phil, whatever his name is, Phil Johnson, telling me about how bad that movement is, or Justin Peters. I don't need that. I know how bad it is, but I will tell you this. The scripture says that healing, there is a correlation between healing and faith. The woman with the issue of blood, for example, it was done unto her according to her faith. Right here, the centurion is healed as you have believed. It shall be done for you as you have believed. Do you realize that the more you believe in Jesus, the more he does things for you? How about in Nazareth? They didn't believe, and so he didn't heal. Now, I realize that, that is, you can't be a monomaniac about this, a reductionist, and think that, that, that you reduce everything to how much faith you have, then you do end up in the word, word of faith error. But we can't throw out the scripture here. It was done unto that centurion as, you be, as, as he believed. So if you want Jesus to do a lot for you, develop your faith in him and trust in him. And that takes time. It takes discipline. It takes spiritual discipline. It takes going through trials. It takes a lot. It's not, he's not, it's not like a genie in the Bible religion like the faith people, the hyper faith people like to make it sometimes. But it's talking about a, a life of relationship with Jesus. The more you know him, the more you believe in, the more you believe in, the more he gives to you. Didn't he say with the measure when he was talking about uh, to the disciples in one place about spiritual riches? He said, the more you have, the more you're going to get. Matthew 8, verse 14, verse 15. 
Then Jesus went into Peter's house. He saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. So now we go into the second healing. Excuse me, the third healing. The leper was number one. The centurion slave was number two. And this is Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. This is back in the house in Capernaum where Jesus was probably living his base of ministry there on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter lived there with Andrew, his brother. We know that this was uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew's house because Mark 1.29 says this. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. So this was their house. And by the way, Simon and Andrew were originally from Bethsaida, which is on the northeastern region of the Sea of Galilee. They apparently had moved from Bethsaida, not very far from Bethsaida to Capernaum. So they were there and their family. They just come back from the synagogue. They had a traditional meal after the synagogue meeting. I'm not sure whether this was Friday night or Saturday morning. Saturday Sabbath for the Jews started on Friday night. I believe this was Saturday morning. But at any rate, she's lying there sick in bed with a fever. And this fever was probably life-threatening, uh, some people speculate. Because we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, that it was a high fever. And he left the synagogue, Jesus. He entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And he healed her, again, out of compassion. Notice how she got up and began to serve him immediately. How powerful these healings were. Because usually people get are sick, they're weak. They don't feel like, after they get healed, they don't feel like getting up and, and working. She got up and started doing house store, short, household chores, cooking, serving Jesus. That's a good preaching point there. Jesus does something for you, serve him. Get up out of bed and serve him. Show your gratitude toward him and try to tell people about the kingdom. Teach them, exhort them, help them, encourage them. Pray for their sicknesses, whatever. But serve him after he does something good for you. Now, it's ironic that Peter had a mother-in-law because Peter, you know, as the Catholics say, was the first pope. The first pope was married. Actually, all of the Catholic priest, I say Catholic, the early church priest up until what? I think it's about 500 or so. They were all married. And then this doctrine of priestly celibacy crept into the church, and now it's with us to this day. Let me give you Adam Clark's considered opinion about this Catholic practice. Those who pretend to say that the single state is more holy than the other state slander their maker and say, in effect, we are too holy to keep the commandments of God. Well, that's my sentiments exactly when you look at all this pedophilia that's been going on amongst the Catholic Church. This is the year 2018 that I'm speaking here. It's disgusting. And don't tell me it has nothing to do with people unnaturally living single lives. I know some people have the gift of celibacy. I never met one. But sometimes you can't get married because of the present distress and all that. But when there's no reason not to get married, for crying out loud, get married. Marriage is on the downslope in uh, in America. People in their 20s to 30s, according to all the polls, are not getting married, and it's causing nothing but trouble. It destabilizes society. Marriage was not even an impediment to apostleship. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says this, Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? So uh, J- uh, the Lord's brothers, including James the Just, Cephas, Simon Peter, uh, they had Christian wives. And they had the right to carry those wives with them. I don't know whether they that they actually did it. They had the right to do it. Paul had the right. That doesn't mean he was married. It might have been a right in the abstract. But the point is, is that being married didn't stop you from being an apostle. Being married does not stop you from ministering in the church of Christ. Martin Luther was exactly right about that. And he was good to marry his beloved Katie as an object lesson to all Catholics after that. Unfortunately, the, all Catholics haven't listened to him. Now, Jesus liked to touch those whom he healed. And he 
again touched Peter's mother and all. This is very typical. Now, we can't make a, a law out of it, a, a law of regularity about it, a, a pattern over it, because he didn't touch the centurion's servant. He just healed him from afar. Let's go to Matthew. Well, let's quit right there. That's a good place to stop. Hope you enjoyed it. Next video, we'll start with Matthew 18.